Welcome to this week's episode of the HC Hive, a podcast about all things HCI, UX, and grad school. We're now in Hershali, students in Georgia Tech's Human Computer Interaction Program. In this episode, we are talking about stakeholders. To share their insights on the episode today, we have Grace and Jill. Grace, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Grace. I just finished my first year in the MSHCI program at Georgia Tech. Previously, I majored in math at Mount Holyoke, and then I spent two years testing software, and then two years as a product manager for a software company. Awesome. Thanks for being here, Grace. We're excited to hear about all your stories and all your stakeholder adventures. Jill, how about you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Jill Nyland. I just finished my second year at Georgia Tech in MSHCI I'm in the computing track. But I do that part time because I'm also a partner at a global accounting firm. I've actually been there 22 years <laughs> and I've been leading a startup for my firm the past few years. So in addition to that, I'm a wife of 20 years and a mother of three girls. So that's why it's going to take me a little longer than you all. Yep, that's great. Thank you both for introducing yourselves and for joining us for an episode of the podcast today. Um, we're really excited to hear about your experiences, um, especially across not just within HCI, but outside of it as well. Um, so just to start us off, usually stakeholders are more broadly defined by the people who can affect or are affected by a decision. So in your own experiences, who have your stakeholders been and what kind of roles or teams um, have you worked with them on? The interesting thing is that stakeholders are literally everywhere. Within the startup that I lead at my company, we, you know, have our clients, our customers, you know, those are obviously the most important and influential stakeholders. They're the people who are building for, which I know is a very HCI thing to say, but it's very true. I also have US and international teams. So I work at PricewaterhouseCoopers. So the PwC teams globally who are using our products and they're a bit of a secondary uh, client and stakeholder. I lead a team where there's a ton of talent and I need to keep uh, that talent happy and excited. They're definitely affected by the decisions that we make. And then we have PwC leaders and their stakeholders that you know fund the business, support the business, bring assets to the business. Uh, the, the leaders of the business lines, our CFO, legal counsel, risk management, sales and marketing, and really all of the stakeholders that I mentioned have to know, you know what we're doing, agree with our decisions, or at least most of the stakeholders have to agree at the same time, <laughs> because not everyone will. And then I have a lot of stakeholders as well in my personal life. So my children, my husband, the stakeholders on the board that I sit on, the charities that I support. In fact, I just got off the phone with the assistant principal at my children's school. So he's another stakeholder. So really stakeholders are everywhere. Yeah, I totally agree with Jill. And thinking about this question, almost everyone is a stakeholder. I wrote down some specific answers from my time as a product manager. So I think about our customers, but also our users, which the people purchasing the product aren't always the same as the people actually using it. So make sure you think about both of them. The internal executives, other product managers who are also trying to make similar decisions about a product we share, the developers on the team, the marketing team, the services team that implements the product, and then also support 
who who answers any any issues or problems or bugs that come up. They have a a big stake in the product we release. Wow, so that's that's a pretty extensive list from from both of you guys. You know, it just I guess goes to show how very rarely do we live in vacuums, right? Like we live in very sort of interconnected environments and organizations and there's a lot of sort of interesting dependencies between everybody. So thinking more about kind of those connections and kind of the network that we are a part of, whether it's in our personal life or our business or professional lives, what are some of the types of relationships that you can have with a stakeholder? And, you know, how do we kind of strengthen those relationships? How do we initiate them? How do we kind of strengthen them over time? Kind of how do we reconcile all these different kind of expectations that we may have with somebody? So I guess when I was thinking of this question, I thought, I'm really, I really bucket my stakeholders <laughs> to the ones that, you know, really, really matter and then kind of nice to haves and then, you know, people maybe that don't matter as much. So in my experience, there are some stakeholders that'll be huge supporters of whatever you're trying to do or, or yourself in particular. Hopefully those are mostly customers when you're dealing with a business context. Some will think what you're doing makes sense. So they'll be like more positive than negative. Some will be neutral. And then candidly, there's some stakeholders that will just never like what you're doing and they'll create obstacles for you and make it really hard for you to accomplish your goals, especially, you know, if you're looking at being in a startup business where the competition for capital and continued investment is high. So what I do is I hope that my supporters are very influential people and I always try to align what I'm doing with their growth objectives. So For example, before we ever built anything in my startup, I met with 75 companies and our key demographics, just about the concept for the startup. So gathered their feedback, understood their pain points, you know, their observations on whether the design would meet their needs, other things that they had developed as best practices that I hadn't considered or my team hadn't considered. And then we built... We tested it with pilot clients. We assessed, we iterated. I even this morning went back to one of my initial customers that we talked to four years ago and got their feedback on the latest version of the idea. And this was before I became an HCI student and actually understood how to do this. So um, (laughs) two years into this program that focuses pretty much entirely on how to do this process effectively, I continue to think that user customer obsession is the most important aspect of stakeholder management. You know, ultimately I'm a partner in a client service business. So we're ultimately trained that meeting the needs of our customers is really what matters. And then, you know, if you are meeting the needs of the market and the customers, generally the rest of the stakeholder group will come along. So I have partners that lead big accounts, partners that are in charge of markets and sectors that are aligned with where my solutions aligned as a priority because it aligns with their growth goals. Those people are helpful in managing detractors as well. And then there's my team. So ultimately I have to understand each of their individual goals and help them achieve their goals. And then when they encounter obstacles, even if those are really hard things, I have to be willing to remove those obstacles. And then we have to stay in in constant, um, contact with my team as well. So that's a bit of how I manage it. I have, you know, regular meetings with all of these people, make sure we're aligning, make sure we're checking in with the market all the time and pushing people in the right direction. Wow. That's, that's really comprehensive. And I think, again, it just goes to show kind of the complexity of what it is that you do, whether it's, you know, working with 
people that you collaborate with, people who are maybe a little more adversarial towards your goals. And then of course the people that, you know, you're responsible for as a leader. So many different types of relationships there. Uh, I do have a follow-up to Jill, what you said, but Grace, do you have anything to add before I jump into that? Yeah. One of the tools that I use to manage and keep track of stakeholders is this thing called the influence interest matrix. Jill, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I know. <laughs> oh, okay, great. So it's, it's this matrix and there's four quadrants on it and podcasts are audio medium, so I can't draw it for you, but on the X axis is interest. And as interest goes up, in you know your product or your feature and then on the y-axis is influence so how much influence does this particular stakeholder have whether that be financially or they're the ceo or different aspects that give someone power in the company so in the top right quadrant these are your key stakeholders they have a lot of influence and a lot of interest in your product bottom le left quadrant is the least important people. They neither have influence over your product, nor do they particularly care about it. And then there's the other two quadrants as well. So when I'm first trying to get the lay of the land for a particular area that I'm working in, or if I'm struggling to manage stakeholders, I will actually sit down and place different people, different executives, different specific customers into this quadrant, because it helps you prioritize your decisions. So if someone is really, really loud and disagreeing with your decision and they just don't like what you're, what you're doing at all, but that person isn't particularly powerful, nor do they really have a vested interest in your, in your product, you can pretty safely ignore their complaint. However, if that person is a key stakeholder, you really need to give time with them and talk to them about their concerns and make sure you come to some kind of compromise and address their issues. So this can help a lot if you have competing stakeholders and they have different different opinions and they aren't aligned. I wish I would have had that. I had to figure it out by myself, but <laughs> that's a great tool. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, one of my mentors gave it to me when I was really struggling. Yeah, that, that sounds super cool. I had never heard of that either. So thanks for sharing that, Grace. Today, today we learn. But yeah, I think both of you kind of referenced this that, you know, there are some people that are very supportive and have a lot of power and lots of different dynamics that are generally kind of net positive towards your goals. And then you have people who are maybe a bit more competitive or even kind of opposed to whatever you may have or, or whatever goals you may have. So in, in an environment that can be kind of competitive, how would you guys kind of suggest creating a collaborative space, you know, and how do you resolve those tensions and resolve those issues with the stakeholder when they are so strongly opposed to whatever goals or ideas that you have? You know, how do you push back at a stakeholder? I'll try not to bore you too much with accounting and global tax, but, you know, accounts, accountants are used to doing things a certain way historically. And I, I don't think that we've really been all that disrupted versus, you know, other industries like, like retail or newspaper business or sales. So now we're kind of, you know, on the cusp of a big disruption and I'll say something controversial, but basically what accountants do is they, they take data and they apply rules to it and then they put it on a form and then somebody reviews it. And that's basically what every piece of accounting globally does in one form or fashion. And when you look at that formula, it 
lends itself to a technology solution um, because technologies are really good at manipulating data and applying recurring rules and putting them on recurring formats. The quality review will never be replaced, but if you take an accounting firm like mine, which is in like, I don't know, 170 something countries and I don't know, $50 billion in revenue, I'll probably get that wrong. And there's a bunch of people who get paid to do things manually in silos, adding a technology that realizes synergies and aggregates that all of those different activities in every country into a centralized technology model is of course a hugely disruptive thing to suggest or try to undertake. And so, you know, when we came up with this idea, we knew it was going to be hugely disruptive. It was going to impact the revenue that all of our partners earn, but ultimately the way in which we were delivering did not meet the market needs. It did not meet our needs of our clients. And we weren't doing our best in driving value for them in the old model and technology created something that allowed us to deliver better. So the, the, the most important thing for me, the thing that has led to survival in the past few years is really the fact that this new operating model allows us to meet the needs of our clients. It allows us to deliver a better data experience, allows them to use the data in better ways to drive business decisions. Even though we're automating a lot of the tasks that we used to got to get paid for, you know, driving costs down at our clients, driving costs down in the capital markets are objectives that are really important to the success of our ultimate stakeholders, which are our clients. And so as long as you can prove that you can do that and you can deliver it in a high quality way, I found that even the detractors will ultimately go along with, with what you're suggesting because it's in their best interest to do so. And the market's going to move in this direction, regardless of whether they like it. So I know that's a lot of words, but I, I do think it's, it's around understanding why people might have a challenge with what you're trying to accomplish, understanding the obstacles, making sure you can deliver what you're, what you're agreeing to and that the clients have a good client experience. And ultimately, a healthy business or a business that wants to you know, stay in existence for a long time will end up over time having to go along with what it is that you're saying in order to stay relevant to its stakeholders. So, and I know this is a very like Amazon thing to say in being customer obsessed, but if you're not customer obsessed and if you don't have a stakeholder group that will ultimately stick with you long enough for you to pull it off and think about the long-term benefits of an idea like this, it's it'll be really hard to accomplish. And so, I always focus on the market first and the business comes along or most of the business comes along or enough people in the business come along to, to stay in existence long enough to be successful. And so far that has worked for me in managing, you know, business interest, interests, conflicts, et cetera. Now that said, I feel like people are constantly telling me that I've taken a lot of punches and, and it's <laughs> difficult and you have to have perseverance and all of those kinds of things. But but, but that's how you accomplish something given all those competing interests. For me, I think there's one, like the overarching most important thing is respect. Just you want to respect all of your stakeholders and understand that they do what they do 
the best. They do what they do better than you do. You do what you do better than they do. And just respect each other's expertise, their knowledge. And if you can get that like respect for one another, then any differences of opinion will ultimately resolve. So I need to let others share their opinions with me and I need to listen critically, listen empathetically and understand what they're saying to ultimately synthesize a decision though that I know only I can make because I've heard the opinions of a variety of stakeholders. So if you can get that type of mutual respect, I think that really goes a long way. And then actually I'll add another point to that, which is if you're junior, like myself, like I was, I've been out of school for only four years, junior, but in a leadership position, that can be very difficult because respect is something that needs to be earned over time. So if you can find a mentor, find someone to support you and they can help, you know, go to battle for you if that's what it ultimately comes down to. So being able to find someone that, that can help boost you up is, is really helpful for more junior leaders. Yeah, those, those are both really great points, Grace and Jill. Thanks for sharing like different examples from your own experience. Uh, I do have a kind of a follow-up again. So I feel like we've kind of talked about like receiving pushback from stakeholders or having to mitigate this pushback when it comes to like trying to get them on like our sides, have them buy into our ideas or the changes we want to make to an organization or to this project, however we want to kind of describe the situation. But I think earlier, Grace, you mentioned something about when you have different groups of stakeholders, or as Jill, you mentioned, like different buckets of stakeholders where their interests might be competing against one another. So from your all's experience, like how do you manage to like get them on the same page? So not necessarily the same page with you, but at least the same page with each other. You're not always going to do that. That's not the best answer, but it's definitely true. You might have two customers that want completely different things. And so you need to, you need to be okay with that. I guess you need to be okay with giving bad news essentially. And that's, that's what it comes down to and giving the bad news in a way that makes the customer understand that you heard them and you've made a different decision for a specific reason and you are, you're still on their side and you're still with them. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think it takes a lot of practice. Yeah, I totally agree with Grace. I, I don't think that's even possible. (laughs) There will always be people who do not agree with what it is that you're trying to do. And what I try to do is, I guess, informally apply the, the framework that Grace suggested. You know, I look at all of the stakeholders, their motivations, their goals, their desired outcomes. And I just try to align with the motivations for at least the majority of the stakeholders, the most influential ones. And then when I'm dealing with the ones that don't, maybe don't agree with me or never are going to agree, I try to be really transparent and honest and kind of consultative in driving to a consensus if that's possible. At least they understand where I'm coming from and that I don't have nefarious, you know, objectives. (laughs) They can see that I understand what they're saying. I always try to repeat back what what they're saying if somebody is giving me a contrary view. Sometimes they're right and sometimes their views make the idea better. So I I do think, you know, I try to do my best to let them know when we make a decision that is not 
you know, what they want. And then sometimes the people who dissent are really powerful and you have to figure out how to get them at least to neutral or, you know, get them out of the decision-making process. And so what I do is, again, this is similar to what Grace said, I have a whole group of informal mentors that have all different kinds of skill sets and experiences. So I'll go to that group and ask for advice usually. I also go to other powerful stakeholders and have those stakeholders intervene on my behalf or on behalf of the solution. And ultimately, you know, it's, it's somewhat of a democracy in that if most people agree and then there's a few people who don't agree, you can acknowledge the disagreement, but still move forward with the idea. And I've also found that even against extreme opposition, if you make your clients happy and you're winning large accounts, most of the stakeholders will stay happy happy long enough for you to continue to exist and prove out, you know, your theory and your strategy. So, so yeah, I, I think, you know, lots of people come to mind as people who will never, will never agree with what it is that I'm trying to do in one aspect of my life or another, but I try to keep them in the minority and be transparent with them about how I'm making decisions. Another idea comes to my mind, which is effective if you are trying to make a decision with people who disagree with each other and everyone can all be in the same room or on the same call, is actually like a lot of times when you're trying to make difficult decisions, people are arguing for their favorite idea. So say we have four ideas and people like two different ones the best. But Actually, if you're able to take control of the conversation and flip it from which do you think is the best idea to can everyone live with this solution, you're able to actually get a lot more agreement. So really, it's often that a particular person hates one of the solutions, but they're okay with those two. So compromise with each other by framing it not as which solution are you fighting for, but which solution are you okay with accepting, then that can be a new frame of mind to get a lot of agreement. Yeah, those are really great points, Jill and Grace, and definitely a lot of really solid advice that I think a lot of us can take, whether we're in UX or outside of UX, designers, researchers, engineers, whatever, but in terms of managing and building these relationships with stakeholders. And it's really interesting, Grace, that you brought up kind of like flipping the idea of when you have these multiple things you're trying to push with different tiers of stakeholders in that instead of asking them for their favorite, maybe asking them the things that they're okay with and things like that in order to have more common ground among like the whole team. Um, So that's really cool. But kind of moving more specifically into UX and HCI as a whole. So as professionals within this field, what do you all think are the more unique challenges of advocating for users um, in front of business partners or in front of other stakeholders? I think HCI is more commonly understood with some of the bigger tech companies or people who companies who big build apps, et cetera. But it's it's less commonly understood, you know, outside of those those industry groups. And so I feel like maybe the the idea of research and the importance of research as being, I think, really the most valuable part of anything that you build, whether that be technology or otherwise, it doesn't get as much 
airplay outside of those key industries that are more familiar. And so, and so people might be inclined to just go build something uh, because in a vacuum, they have that problem, right? Or rush something to market that might not align with ultimately the stakeholders or the market needs. And so I think raising awareness as to the importance of the front end of this process, the research part, even outside of outside of the key industries that are building tech products is probably something that's really important and something that all of us as HCI majors should should try to do in our own networks and then you know more expansive in the business community and I applaud you all for doing these types of podcasts where people can hear these perspectives and, and become more familiar. One of the things that I think is super important when talking, especially to internal executives, is having metrics and numbers to back up your HCI research. And this is like my number one tip for HCI professionals trying to get their work like respected and understood. So if you are doing interviews, for example, you can say like 10 out of 12 people said this thing or like two people said this thing without even being asked about it. You have your surveys, how many percent agrees with something, product metrics. So like if 70% of people clicked the cancel button, then that's kind of an indicator that you've got a problem. So a lot of executives and business-minded people really respond to these numbers and this data. And so you might present to other HCI professionals more with the stories and the feelings, but executives, you want to present these numbers that they can't really argue with. Yeah, I think, I think that's so true. I think having metrics or having like quantitative measures always help. Like it's really easy to quickly glance at numbers and see the impact or showing like the success rate of something. I think some people kind of lean more towards seeing those numbers as opposed to like reading really long reports or um, Mm -hmm. like that. Um, Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like a unique challenge that I face for sure, like not even just with managing stakeholders, but specifically with UX research at like a firm where maybe they don't do as much research or their type of research is just testing and not doing as much like generative or exploratory methods, but it's like advocating for UX research. And then UX designers have to advocate UX design having to have almost every aspect of our project or our role have buy-in from like tiers of stakeholders or different groups that we've talked about, but also within our own teams. Yeah, just to kind of echo that, just now what you said, I feel like in user experience work, there's so much kind of advocacy for even the process of user experience work, right? Whether it is kind of long-term, really sort of heavy-handed generative research, exploring a user and kind of their rich world that they bring in, you know, stakeholders don't always have like the time for that. So I think a big part of the challenges that I've faced have also been advocating for the process of research, advocating the process of design. And I think, Jill, to your point, even within tech, I would say there are sort of levels of maturity in terms of how much people are willing to adopt the human-centered design process, right? Some people are very on board. They understand what the value of it is. But, you know, there are still firms out there, especially like startups where, you know, they don't necessarily have the time to do that. You know, they just want go, 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 build, test, build, test. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely kind of unique challenges of being in a space that's maybe a little newer, a little younger, and so there's a lot of sort of persuasion 
of, you know, more established business partners. But since both of you have kind of experience working in industry and you guys have both kind of alluded to unique experiences that you've had, stories that you've had working with stakeholders and partners, what advice would you guys give somebody about working in a team in a, in a collaborative environment with stakeholders who are both supporting you, looking up to you, mentoring you, and also kind of competing with you? What's kind of some advice that you guys would give? One thing I want to bring up, which isn't directly an answer to your question, but I do think it's harder to be like to be a woman in this space, in the business space. And I, I want to like acknowledge that and bring it up. So especially if you're young, I started working as a PM when I was 24. And I remember sitting in these strategy meetings with a bunch of men in suits who were all my father's age. And it was really hard to feel like respected and your opinion mattered. And I want to want to acknowledge that if anyone's feeling these challenges that, you know, it's, it's real and a lot of us face that. And I felt like I needed to dress a specific way. I wanted to dress older so that I was taken seriously. And you also do a lot of code switching, which I think, I don't think is necessarily a bad, a bad thing, but you'll talk to different people in different ways. Um, I'll talk to the older executives and dress with, with my meetings with them differently than I would dress and talk to my 22 year old developer. And that to some extent is super normal. You want to talk with people in a way that's like comfortable for them and meet them where they're at. So that's both my advice is like acknowledge that this is hard and you know, try your best and you're doing your best. And that is something I kind of wanted to bring up. That is absolutely true. <laughs> and I also think women and minorities, you know, face just psychologically, like potentially imposter syndrome more frequently. There's a scientific confidence gap that, you know, Harvard has a lot of research on. And so, you know, understanding that about yourself and that you're inclinations might be to be less confident versus majority peers and, you know, acknowledging also that they have no greater chance of being successful than you do based on base skill set. So just kind of, you know, pushing through that a bit. And I remember when my firm asked me to lead the deals business in the Southeast, which is mergers and acquisitions, which is a tough, a tough group. And there were only like two women who had ever done that. And I woke up one day with my first staff meeting with the whole deals business in the Southeast. And I didn't know what a female deals leader wore to work. I didn't know if it, if it was a suit, but then there were younger stakeholders and I didn't know if I should wear jeans. And so I remember having this whole conundrum that probably wouldn't occur, have occurred to, you know, one of my male deals leaders that I actually didn't know how to present myself as a female deals leader. And so I just decided to, to be myself and whatever I felt most comfortable in conveying the message. But I do, I do acknowledge what Grace said, that there is a, a difference that we all are grappling with every day. And I also acknowledge what Grace said in that knowing all of your stakeholders and understanding, you know, what genre they they belong to what their tenure is and you know how i manage more tenured stakeholders versus 
maybe the younger stakeholders on my team is very different. You know, older stakeholders, in my experience, want to have meetings before the meetings and agree and get to consensus before <laughs> you ever get there. And the younger stakeholders, we all just want to get on the phone and debate it and make a decision. And there's, you know, positives and negatives to each approach. And, you know, it's hard to say that the older stakeholders don't also have it right, even though I lean a bit more towards the younger stakeholder style, because they have been very successful in running businesses up until this point in, in doing things in their way. And so the question is a bit around like, how do you manage all kinds of stakeholders? And I just really think you have to diagnose the culture, the genre, the tenure, all of those kinds of things. And also, you know, get feedback from others on what has been effective with each of those groups and then just, you know, try it out. You got to love the meeting before the meeting. I hate the meeting before the meeting. <laughs> I hate it with a passion. <laughs> but also an, an example, like to show concretely, if I'm meeting with a customer, I am going to look up that customer on LinkedIn, figure out, you know, their tenure, what, what part of the country or the world do they live in? What do they wear to work usually? And I'm going to try to match that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just trying to understand who you're talking to and um, work with them in, in a way that makes them most comfortable. Wow, this is this is really great. This is really great advice. And also just, you know, like clearly you guys have kind of been around the block. You guys have experience and that's where this has come from. So thank you so much for sharing both of those pieces of advice. Now, I'm going to actually ask you, toss it over to you. What's some advice you would give uh, somebody working with stakeholders? Um, yeah, so I, I do want to comment and mention that both Grace and Jill provided like really amazing advice. I think it's so important to what both of them were saying, like to cater to your audience, whether that be knowing like what position they're in or how much influence they have within this particular project or in this particular company, or just even what type of information that they enjoy, whether it's like a quantitative measures within a presentation or like quotes or something like that. But I think in terms of, I guess, like what advice I would give someone that might be slightly different than that, I think is we might have alluded to this already, but asking other people who have previously worked with the stakeholders that you're in, you're about to interact with, that you're about to embark on a project with. Like speaking on like my internship um, this past summer, I had a project that involved building like an internal website. It involved like meeting like other UX researchers, other designers, developers, engineers who would potentially be using this internal site for the UX team. And I found that everything became a lot easier after I knew that like, oh, so-and-so really hates long interviews. So you got to cut it down to like 30 minutes or like this person is only open on these days. This person enjoys these type of questions. This person's really chatty. So you might need more time. So kind of like what Grace was saying, like this sounds weird to say, not like stalking them or anything, but like getting all the information you need about them. So you become like fully prepared when you start having those conversations with them, I think some advice I have. But yeah, I agree with both Grace and Jill. The meeting after meeting, or the meeting be after the meeting is bad. The meeting is also kind of annoying sometimes, but at least like this past summer, they didn't just say like, oh, let's have another meeting. It was like, we need to have a debrief. So I would just have a bunch of debriefs on my calendar. Like after we had meetings with stakeholders, then I would meet with maybe a person who was in the meeting to just discuss what other people had mentioned, like a side chatter online or something. But 
I guess that's another piece of advice I would give to people is when you're working with multiple stakeholders, you're probably going to end up having a lot of different meetings. So be prepared for that. Yeah, the debrief usually happens like in the hallway. But I guess if you're virtual, you'd have to schedule that. Yeah, that's true. And it was interesting too. at least what I found like this past time working online, like a lot of people mentioned that they felt like decisions happened in the hallway, like when they were in person, because <laughs> people would walk outside of the like conference room or something. And just in the hallway, they'll be discussing that. I'm like, yeah, like, let's go with that. And then it would be followed up. Oh, we briefly met after the meeting, maybe someone's presentation about specific design changes that have to be made or like different concepts that they're trying to push for. And, and then they wrap it up in the email, like put a little bow on it and then it's done. But then now it's like you have the 15 minute debrief and then you want to get someone else in on it. So then you have another meeting the next morning. So it's interesting. It's interesting to think about. But what about you, Harshali? What advice would you give to someone? I'll keep this brief, but I think in my head, I, I always treat my stakeholders as my primary user group. And when I mean stakeholders, I mean the, the product team that I'm working with, right? So the designer, the engineers, the PMs that I'm working with, even my manager, my research manager, they are my first user group. Uh, I think of them as, you know, putting them through kind of the U.S. process where, you know, what are their needs, their motivations, the assumptions that they're making, their biases, their goals, and then how my research can be designed and you know crafted in a way to meet those needs. So not just thinking about the users and what their needs are, but also kind of the people who are using my research and where my research is going once it leaves my hands. That's kind of how I frame my relationships. So usually like when I first join a team, I'll sit down with whoever I'm working with and be like, what do you want out of this project? Where do you see this going in the next you know, month? What do you hope to have happened? You know, what are your goals? And so that sort of is like a, it's like an interview, you know, that you would do with like a user, but it's just to get to the bottom of what they want out of your research and how your research will be applied. So that's kind of my advice is, you know, treat, treat your partners like your like a user and, and put them through the HCD process. Nice. Really solid advice. But yeah. So as we're kind of winding down and wrapping up this episode, it's time for our favorite part of every episode, which is the hot take. So for this episode's hot take question to you all, who is the toughest stakeholder that you have ever worked with? Jill, maybe you can share a little bit about this. Yeah, sure. And when I thought of this question, I thought what immediately popped into my head is my children running around yelling that they refuse to wear pants or eat vegetables. So I will not use that, but they are probably the toughest stakeholders. <laughs> I, I would the story that popped into my head was when I was a newer partner in the in my firm, and this gets to what Grace was saying about women. I was asked to take on a diversity, equity, and inclusion role in our mergers and acquisitions business. So to lead that for the national practice. And for those of you who don't know, mergers and acquisitions partners are like the toughest in the business. It's, you know, highest performing, fastest moving, et cetera. And at the time we had only 4% female partners in that business. And I was one of them and, and very few minorities that has since improved, but our leadership inside PwC impressed on the mergers and acquisitions leader at the time, the importance of DEI and driving growth and driving our strategy. So they approached me as a first year female partner, so a very junior female partner, to lead this initiative and essentially walk in once a month to a room of tenured, really tough senior partners and deals and try to convince them to care about this. And it was a really hard thing to do because their business was doing really well and had the great best margins. 
really without much of an intentional focus on DEI historically. So, and then this wasn't my subject matter expertise at the time. I, I was a deal structuring partner. So essentially what I ended up doing is I assessed the white space around the deals business and growth opportunities for the business that would align with our core competencies, but also delivering better DEI outcomes. And I knew walking into the room early on in my tenure in this role that I couldn't be boring. I knew that they would probably scowl at me. They were not overly excited about the topic. A couple of the senior partners told me I couldn't cry. So don't cry because the last woman that we let in the room cried and that made everyone uncomfortable. <laughs> and then I had to somehow create a positive association between diversity and equity and inclusion and this group and get them to care. So essentially what I did is I tried to make it fun. So I, over time, we, we, we created an innovation contest nationally. We funded the winners of the innovation ideas, which happened to be DEI oriented. It didn't have to be, but those are the ones that the, the deals leaders picked. We engaged the senior partners. We had them sponsor the ideas. We had them help with presentations, give coaching. Senior people love to help others. And then every time there would be a gain against our goals, this is, might sound, I don't know, so, like something maybe you shouldn't do, but I would reward them. So I would bring in red and green cupcakes from their favorite bakeries in New York. And hopefully there are more greens, so more positive wins than than res, which is like a, a color kind of, you know, HCI concept in terms of using colors to reinforce messages. I use a lot of sports analogies, Malcolm Gladwell analogies in order to get them to embrace it. And eventually when I came into the room and we talked about DEI, they would smile. And they would look forward to the conversation they leaned in. and they, we made a lot of good progress, like aromatherapy, apparently popcorn is very effective. So just any idea that you have to make it a positive experience for them, that would really enable them to lean in and for us to accomplish our goals and the deals business, you know, did really well in embracing that over the two years that I was in that role. So those are my harder stakeholders, my hardest stakeholders. Wow. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It sounds like it's been a success, though. That's really cool that you've found different ways to kind of address like how to make this ex the overall experience more fun, whether it's cupcakes, popcorn, aromatherapy, or anything like that. Well, I can't let Jill's comment about crying at work go without follow up. <laughs> I too have been told not to cry at work. It makes the men scared. And like, guys, we gotta stop this. <laughs> This is a hill I will die on moving forward. You know, it's okay to cry at work. If you're crying at work, it's because you care so much about what you're doing that like you feel emotional about it. And it's so past time to normalize that, but it's still very, very stigmatized in the work in a lot of workplaces. Totally agree. But for my stakeholder challenge, I'm going to call them the interrupter. This is something I struggle with so much, but you're trying to give a presentation or share your opinion and a particular person likes to interrupt you mid-sentence and ask like a different question or ask a question that maybe you're gonna get to in five slides. And so that always, I really, really struggled with that for a long time. And then I learned how to say, hold on, I'll get to that. <laughs> and it does, does have a positive story that I learned how to, you know, speak up for myself and respond to said interrupter. But that took multiple years to learn how to do that. Wow. 
such such interesting stories and I don't know I feel like workplaces yes they're like professional and we're supposed to have like a very certain presentation of ourselves a very certain version of ourselves but like workplaces are really filled with human beings and I think you know everybody's kind of quirky and everybody has I don't know their their humanity really boils over in workplaces and somehow we have a culture of kind of denying that so it is interesting to hear these stories from you guys but thank you so much for sharing and we just want to say thank you to Jill and Grace, both of you guys, for sharing so much deep insight and knowledge and just so much like informed experiences and stories about your work and working with other people. It's been an, an enormously insightful episode, I think. So much fun. So thank you for joining us on this episode of the HC Hive. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this has been really, really great. And to all of our listeners out there, Tune in next time for an episode about UX for NASA. Because if you know, you know. And if you don't, yikes.